and welcome to My Boyfriend's Podcast, the podcast about things your boyfriend likes. I'm your boyfriend, Walt, joined as always by... Your boyfriend, Tim. And not by your boyfriend, Chris. He's left the podcast forever. Goodbye, Chris. <laughs> uh, we're announcing Chris's resignation. Uh, no, he was he was very busy, and so uh, we're having to cover for him. He's a busy guy. He's a very busy guy. Uh, but he's with us here in spirit as we discuss uh, what your boyfriend likes this week, which is movies, TV, and death. Hail Thanatos. <laughs> Um, hail the Grim Reaper who will deliver us from this mortal coil. Um, yeah, we're specifically talking about in honor of uh, the new Breaking Bad movie, El Camino, featuring Jesse Pinkman. Neither a car, neither a truck, <laughs> nor a truck. Very true. Uh, we're going to be talking about TV and movie characters who were slated to be killed off during their first appearance, but proved too charming or useful or whatever else. To, to do away with who ended up being mainstays of the series that they were a part of. But before we get into the tofu, uh, it's still tofu, even though our, our resident vegan is out this week. The tofu of this week's episode. Do we have any corrections from last week's incredibly bonkers, stupid episode <laughs> uh, in which we... I think you mean classic and great. Classic and great. It's, it's, it can be all those things. Uh, probably our most high concept episode to date, or at least the one since Harry Potter and Brexit. Um <laughs> Which was, of course, trying to draft a team of slasher movie villains and other movie monsters uh, to create a team that could beat the Los Angeles Lakers in a winner-take-all game on Halloween night. Right. Uh, do we have of any course. corrections from that, that episode? Uh, no, it was perfect. Uh, I, will, I will say one thing. I argued pretty vehemently against uh, the Wolfman's inclusion as our small forward. Uh, <laughs> In, in that game. But I gotta say, egg on my face, and in fact, egg on everybody's face, because no one mentioned one of the bona fide basketball stars in the history of basketball cinema, which is, of course, Teen Wolf, <laughs> um, who, who only thrived uh, once he gained like lycanthropy right. and, and Wolfman powers. So clearly, I underestimated. The, the lichen as uh, <laughs> sure as a, a, a kind of basketball player. And well, uh, I just want to take it back. John Darnell showed us that a werewolf can be a top athlete in a werewolf mask from uh, werewolf Beat the Champ. Werewolf gimmick, yeah, from Beat the Champ. Yeah, uh, that's true. And we can maybe drop that in before we get into the, the tofu of this episode. Yeah, because it slaps. It always slaps. I was not there for rehearsal. Show up just in time to pop You can clear the goddamn floor Empty out the locker room Let me find my space Let him who thinks he knows no fear Look well upon my face Nameless bodies In unremembered rooms Know how a man becomes a beast When the wolf paint blooms Again, we're sort of doing this in honor of the release of El Camino, which will be out by the time this episode comes out. I'm going to be tempted to say neither a car nor a truck every time. (laughs) uh, Love is never having to explain that to me. I know that all about you, Tim. (laughs) Well aware. Um, But yeah, so uh, Jesse Pinkman, who is returning... And I guess a spoiler from the end of Breaking Bad, he survives the climax of that show. And we're picking up, I think, mere moments after his final escape. 
and trying to see, you know, does he outrun the many people who will be out gunning for him on either side of the law? And it's worth noting that Jesse wasn't supposed to get anywhere near here as the show was originally designed. He is this former student of Walter White, the main character, a chemistry uh, teacher at a high school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And he's just a dirtbag. He uses his, you know, essential gifts for chemistry to become a, a really pretty shoddy meth cook. But because of his connections to the underworld, he becomes Walt's entree into into the demimond, into uh, <laughs> into the Albuquerque criminal underworld. They form this sort of extremely toxic, manipulative relationship where Walt exploits Jesse's need for a father figure to use him basically as a henchman. Spoiler. Uh, this is this happens pretty quickly uh, <laughs> and is probably the main theme of the show. But again, Jesse was supposed to be just, you know, your average dirtbag, one of many colorful dirtbags in the show and was supposed to be killed off during the first season as sort of like... A, the, a Baylor the Blessed kind of moment. Yeah, yeah, basically, uh, where nothing bad happens to another character we won't spoil. But, right. um, but yeah, essentially, it was supposed to work out that, you know, Walt gets into meth cooking just to make money for his family because he has terminal cancer and wants to set something out, you know, provide for them after he's gone. But behind that sort of allegedly noble motive for doing a bad thing is the real truth, which is that Walt is a sociopath. He craves power and respect that he never got in his civilian life. And he goes from being like kind of sympathetic at the beginning to a complete monster along the way. And he just sort of like peels that onion Trek style to sort of show who he is. And the first step along that journey would be him sacrificing knowingly or otherwise Jesse as they, you know, get too deep into the drug game. And that was supposed to be how it was going to go. But Vince Gilligan, the creator of the show said like, we knew after the first episode, like we had something really special with Aaron Paul, the actor who portrays Jesse and just with that character. And we could create something much richer, which is not just a scalp on Walt's wall. Yeah. Uh, but rather, you know, an ongoing sort of moral fixture in the show where Jesse is sort of the lingering remnants of Walt's conscience as the show gets deeper and darker. You know, he's obviously very morally corrupt and is doing lots of bad things, but doesn't isn't actively malicious, isn't really trying to hurt people. He's, if anything, trying to distance himself from the natural consequences of the life that he leads. And that that dramatic tension is so much more interesting than if you just killed him off and yeah. fridged him essentially. Then if you like, you you basically sell him for one episode. Yeah. How and many so, episodes do you, how many like good episodes do you buy by keeping him alive? Yeah, a ton, and arguably one of the one of the richest characters. I mean, I would say inarguably one of the richest characters in the show. Arguably the richest, uh, who grows along. Basically, the better that he gets as a meth cook, the more he doesn't want to be a meth cook, which is sort of the opposite of where Walt is yeah. coming at it from. And it just creates this fascinating tension. And also the the fact that like they're both ultimately amateurs. And Walt doesn't realize how much of an amateur he is until the pretty much the very end of the show. And Jesse learns very quickly, but because of Walt's influence, can't get himself out. And it does such a good job of showing like what the really scary people look like in the world. And we get that only because we've got the sort of, again, entree into the underworld uh, with, with Jesse, who knows just enough to know how little he actually knows. Uh, whereas Walt is so consumed with this sort of mission and so egotistical about what he can do 
that it's not until these crazy reversals of fortune that he realizes what actually is, is going on here. So anyway, that's, uh, that's our first example, but we've got many on the big board here. We've got several. We've got several. Tim, another character who was supposed to be done away with very early on. So here comes a phenomenon that we're going to run into again and again, and that is the charismatic actor whose character was supposed to be killed off. Yeah, um, Mr. Too Damn Charming. Right. In this case, especially. Uh, right. So this is Oscar Isaac playing Poe Dameron in Force Awakens. In the scene where he helps Finn escape uh, on the TIE fighter, and they crash in the Jakku Desert, that was supposed to be it. And uh, He's supposed to live on in jacket form. Yeah, and as, as just as the jacket, this is like the only thing that Finn finds, which... Makes that scene later where Poe's like, no, keep it. It suits you. Yeah. Um, Like, that adds so much more to that scene. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about it on our recent episode. We were, you know, talking about remakes and Superman casting specifically and Oscar Isaac being such a good choice for that. Right, And so much of it really does come down to that one scene where he's like, yeah, you look good. And he's got such instant chemistry with um, uh, Finn's Uh, actor. Finn, John Boyega. John Boyega, yeah. And he just seems like the nicest guy. Like you like you like, I want to be friends with that guy. I want him to be nice to me. I was reading an article about this, and it's like, yeah, he's got chemistry with every character. Yeah. He, and and um he doesn't even meet Ray until the end of Last Jedi, and that's a good scene. It is a good scene, yeah. <laughs> uh which he desperately needed after that movie, which uh, doesn't right. pretty dirty, I would say. Sure. He he he's like uh the don't mansplain to me character. Yeah, he's definitely like the Bernard brother. One or not, not, not listening to mother specifically. Um, yeah. Uh, and which is one of the reasons why that movie is so frustrating to me is that like, he's just, he becomes a complete dunce, yeah. like, you know, hot blooded. Uh, and I get that the thief, the theme of the movie is failure and he's, you know, does nothing but fail basically the entire time. But for, to me, contrived reasons that aren't, He's, he only fails because no one tells him what's actually going on. Right. Um, that makes everything worse. Yeah, as he's if that's he's somehow, not allowed to be part of the plan. Yeah, as if that helps the plan at all for anything other than just like contrived dramatic reasons. Right. These are these are separate thoughts though. But like by and large, like how much worse would these new movies be without Oscar Isaac as one of the anchors? Well, you know? He he is so charming. Like he like what would Lost Last Jedi be? I mean, yeah, they just use him as a whipping boy. But you know he's going to bring his all to that scene, even yeah. even, even you know just being um, like you said a dunce. What is that movie without him? Yeah, and also like he's the one who probably makes the most earnest attempt to sort of seal the deal with like the kind of Marvely humor that they work into it. Mm-hmm. You know like that sort of like yeah. uh, prank call thing at the beginning, right? You know Which stuff like that. Like he, I love you, hate we're on the record. Yeah, exactly. We don't need to <laughs> litigate it, but but yeah, but. The, regardless of how you feel about it, like he certainly gives us all and mm-hmm. is the one who can pull it off in the cast. I would say like, I guess without him, you maybe give more airtime to Finn who was certainly not well served. Really in the last Jedi. In yeah. Movie. Didn't really figure, figure out what his sort of arc was supposed to be. Also like they just do such a good job. Apparently realizing like we don't need to kill this guy off. He's great. Oh, this is the Han Solo. Yeah. Basically just in that one scene where, I can't remember if it's when they're because I haven't seen uh, Force Awakens in a while, but the one where he's just like in the black X wing and just mows down like five Tie Fighters. So that that would have been there no matter okay. what because like that was when when they're escaping from the Star Destroyer or whatever. Uh, it, like his whole existence was supposed to be to help Finn escape. 
Yeah. Uh, so he would have no. Died. This this is when they're on the planet. Is oh, this when, when traitor? Ash- yeah, when they're on Ashto, and sure. and the X wings come up, and it's like, holy shit, that's a great pilot, and he kills like twelve X wings. Yeah, and you see him like do the little loop de loop or whatever, and it's uh, you know figure eight, and you can you can count them, and it's seriously like between seven and thirteen that he shoots down in the space of thirty seconds. Yeah, it it totally rules, and it's like. I get that there's like a fan service element uh, yeah. there, but I also think that like, what's the downside of giving all your characters a scene like that to like show how yeah. formidable they actually are. And As opposed to like just building wedges myth that he just continues to be alive. Yeah. And there. Yeah. That's a great example. Actually, like they, in star Wars, so much of it is like one scene wonders or just cool character designs. Yeah. Like Boba Fett doesn't do a single fucking cool thing. That's not true. You say this every time, but he totally clowns on Luke, Leia and Han in, uh, the empire strikes back. He just, he's just there. He just finds them. There's a lot more Boba Fett in that movie than you remember. I disagree. He, he is just skulking in the background following them. And a lot of that is special edition shit. It's not in the, in the original either. That's true. Because of this this exact, like, yeah. a retrospective badassness or whatever. Which, like, in a way I'm for, but also, come on. Um, <laughs> but, no, it is a perfect example because the whole series is Wedge Antilles is great. Yeah. He just survives and helps Luke shake somebody at one point. He he saves Luke at the Death Star. He shoot he wraps up a ATAT and he's he helps destroy the second Death Star. Gotcha. He or he's just there. Right? No, he he actually like the uh, William December Williams. <laughs> <laughs> of course, yes. Uh, Our friend Lando Calrissian. Lando Calrissian, uh, as you know, piloting the Millennium Falcon, he shoots down like the big reactor, and Luke shoots or Wedge shoots like a tower on the right, left side. I gotcha. Yeah, but I mean, if obviously if this were true to its Maoist third worldist roots, Wedge <laughs> would have been the one to kamikaze into right. yeah. into the the executor. <laughs> anyway, but you no, know, I think that's that's perfect because like Poe gets that scene where like oh yeah, he's actually really fucking good at this yeah. instead of like building the legend upon like five seconds of screen time. And and if Last Jedi is all about failure, he has like the, this is what the movie is about line in The Force Awakens where he's like, as long as we have light, there's still hope. Yeah. As as the um, Starkiller base is literally sucking away the sun to turn it into a laser. Sure, <clears throat> sure. Yeah, I, I think like besides Kylo Ren, the best part of those movies uh, up there, certainly. Yeah. Kyle, I think, inarguably, is the best part. Would, yeah, would, would he's, you? he's I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if 10 years from now, J.J. Abrams like, yeah, he's the main character, just like George Lucas was with Vader. I, I think they seem to be coming at that like from the get-go. Yeah. See, because it seems like it's his arc, it, which is part of the problem. Like, I like Ray a lot, and I really like that performance from mm-hmm. Daisy Ridley, but I, I think that she doesn't get as much breathing room. Anyway, it's almost like this is not what we're supposed to be talking about. Right. So anyway, speaking of Han Solo, there you go. <laughs> this yeah. is another character who was supposed to die, but for very different reasons. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Harrison Ford just doesn't like being Han Solo. He truly hates him. Um, hates everything about it, which I love. In a way, it makes him more endearing to me. <laughs> because because he clearly, he's the most disinterested man in Hollywood, seemingly. He does not, however, hate it as much as Alec Guinness hated being Obi-Wan, who did get killed off, and they had to pay um, like an exorbitant amount of money to get Alec Guinness back for like one half day of shooting in, yeah. uh, for Empire Strikes Back. Like a percentage of the profits of the movie went to Alec Guinness, and he made like millions of dollars. Is that true? Yes. For, for I think, a half day of shooting. Good, good for him. <laughs> I, I do love that because it's like, oh, who else are you going to use for Obi-Wan? 
Right. Uh, <laughs> Who else understands this character, this t- incredibly nuanced character? And I'm that's, of course, in scare quotes. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But who else sounds like as weirdly British as I do? <laughs> Very distinct, weird British. Um, yeah, honestly, uh, not nearly as beloved of an actor, but Bruce Willis did a similar thing. It's like when he was doing contract disputes or like had a, had a question about like how the direction of the film should go. And some of the diehard movies is like, okay, here's your next choice to play John McClane. Right. Uh, which, <laughs> fair enough. You know, that's labor power in action, baby. But yeah, Han Solo or uh, Harrison Ford did not want to be in the, in return of the Jedi, which is why you have the carbonite. Cause they can mm-hmm. basically just film it. He lived, he died <laughs> and he doesn't have to be in the next movie. If there's, cause he was in like, I think he was in a contract dispute at that time. And they're yeah. like, we can just kill you. Yeah, and I do, I do wonder, like, because we're obviously, we enjoy these movies ex post facto, like, uh, th- none of the surprises, I think, hold true. And, like, even as a kid, like, I was surprised that Darth Vader was Luke's dad. Yeah. That actually did shock me. But uh, Han Solo going to Carbonite, like, I've seen him I've seen him on the poster of the next movie. Like, yeah, I, like he, I, I know he's going to be okay. And I wonder, like, how much of the time, though, like, in that gap between 1980 or 81 and 87 or whenever the, the third one came out, Probably earlier than that, eighty three maybe. I wonder how much of that was like Thanos snap or whatever, and you're like, or um, motherfucker, the fucking throne room scene from the Last Jedi, where you're like, shit, what happens now? Yeah, if only it ended ended there. But again, yeah. not not relitigating. Uh, yeah, but we, yeah, we've discussed. But I, I do love that Harrison Ford. <laughs> just he's he's flat out said like, I would have died if I could have. And it, I don't think it was that he was lured in by contract disputes. I think George Lucas basically begged him to come back. Yeah. Specifically saying, like, no one's going to buy dead Han toys. And these are movies made to sell toys. Right. And so, anyhow. Uh, but glad he came back, I guess. I like him to a degree how he is used in Force Awakens. Um, oh, I, yeah, I like that. Um He's clearly the most motivated in that because he gets his sweet release of death at the end. <laughs> no, no, no amount of lucre will will be as valuable to him as shuffling off this mortal coil. That is also awesome that he's like, I don't give a f- like. Yes, I know Disney owns this. I know they paid billions of dollars for it, um, but I don't give a fuck. You can't pay me enough to keep doing this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which hats off. That's it's just nice to see an old man's dream being fulfilled. <laughs> You told me last time you were here that you've been pushing for many years to have uh, Han Solo killed off, and I don't want to <laughs> spoil it for anybody. I hope at this point everyone who wants to see the movie has seen the movie, but you, you succeeded. You work for like 25 years for uh-huh. the company. Yeah. You do your best. Uh-huh. You show up every day. You do your job. Uh-huh. And then they just let you go. In this case, they actually killed you. Shocking. <laughs> Shocking. When you saw you yourself... No, I argued for 30 years for this to happen. Right. And uh, finally, I, uh, I wore them down. <laughs> Next up, I'm sorry Chris can't be here to explain this a little bit more, but from the TV show Lost, uh, also much litigated in the history of this podcast, but we yeah. uh, have a little litigation to do. The main character, Jack Shepard, played by Matthew Fox, who is one of the big, I would say, liabilities with the show. He is a a totally bland, nothing character. Was originally intended to be killed off in the first episode, but they it wasn't a situation where they're like, Matthew Fox, you're so great, let's keep you around. 
here's what actually happened. I just found this out, and you can hear the, well, just found something out tone <laughs> creeping into my voice. But what happened? What had happened was they reached out to a then semi-retired Michael Keaton hmm. to come out of retirement to be Jack Shepard and die in the first episode. It's like this big shocker and be like, uh, no one's safe. Like crazy, yeah. yeah. And that, which is a great idea. I think that that yeah. actually would have been awesome. Scene bean. Uh, 100%. Yeah. Sean Bean doing the same thing. And that would have been, I, that's such a terrific idea. And then, uh, with him out of the picture, so much of it is about Kate Evangeline Lilly's character instead, who, as I recall, and again, I wish Chris is here to substantiate this a little bit better. Uh, Kate was so wrapped up in, like, she's originally like, uh, very independent mm-hmm. and has her own like dark past. And this is her opportunity to kind of be a hero after being sort of a petty thief. And, and I think maybe getting somebody killed along the line, kind of her shot of redemption, uh, Paul Simon style. <laughs> and, uh, you can call her Al. Didn't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Of course. Uh, bone digger, bone digger. And now we sing the rest of the song. But anyway, uh, but yeah, instead she gets tied into this, these like series of love triangles between her, Jack, and uh, and Sawyer, who establishes from Jasper, Alabama. Right. And she becomes much less interesting as a result. And it just suffers because she is not given that kind of character building time in the spotlight. Instead, it's just like this as the hypotenuse of, <laughs> the love of, of a love triangle. And so, anyway, potentially something much more interesting. I wish Michael Keaton had said yes in retrospect. Also, Matthew Fox is uh, accused of doing lots of bad things. So um, maybe maybe would have been even better if he'd been completely out of the picture. But also from Lost, one of the nemeses of Jack and Kate is Ben Linus, played by Alabama native, if I'm not mistaken, Michael Emerson. Did not know that. Who was originally supposed to be like a temporary, like, six- episode arc villain um setting up a much bigger bad guy but he was so convincingly clever in his scheming and there's such a manipulative character they're like oh we've we've got our villain here you know he's like the human face of the bigger threat facing everybody and uh yeah they decided to keep him on so one bad decision to keep him jack around one not so bad decision to keep him ben linus around all right so number four on our list here is near and dear to my heart, of course, especially three-year-old Tim watching this movie for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ian Malcolm, as played by Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park. Yeah. Uh, this is another Poe Dameron-style charismatic actor saves character. Yeah, very different kind of charisma, but yeah, undeniably very charismatic. <laughs> no, love him. And obviously, like, style icon. And somebody who I wanted to be so badly when I was, like, eight years oh, old. Oh, yeah, because he's, like... He's he's the alpha nerd. Yeah. Yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> There's no reason. No, no. I want to hear every viewpoint. I really do. Yeah. Don't you see the danger, uh, John, inherent uh, in what you're doing here? Genetic power is the most awesome force the planet's ever seen, but you wield it like a, a kid that's found his dad's gun. It's hardly appropriate to start hurling generalizations. If I may, um, I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done, and you and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it? Well, 
I, I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. The story behind this one is so funny because not only was he supposed to be killed off in the movie, Michael Crichton did kill him off in the novel. Yeah, he is a dead person. And in uh, the first novel. <laughs> In the epilogue. But because of the movie and because of the success of the character in the movie, Michael Crichton had to write him back into The Lost World. And make him the lead. Because <laughs> The Lost World, Steven Spielberg was like, hey, Mike, love your work. Um, Jeff Goldblum is clearly the lead uh, <laughs> in this thing. Like he, he has the dynamite charisma we can build a movie around. So I'm going to need you to do me a favor <laughs> and bring him back for the squeakquel. And uh, that book is not super good. but um, Nor is the movie. You're not wrong. A great set piece in it. And in fact, uh, we may have an upcoming episode about characters who (laughs) didn't really do anything wrong and yet died incredibly gruesome deaths. And The the dude who gets ripped apart by the... Exactly right. Eddie Carr, (laughs) who is the hero, has just saved Jeff Goldblum and Julianne Moore and Vince Vaughn, unfortunately. You know, does this completely heroic thing. And is undeniably one of the good guys, and just out of pure bad luck, gets eaten by Tyrannosaurus. And like it's, most of the characters in Saving Private Ryan, true, go into that category. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> he's the Tom Sizemore of that movie. Yeah. But no, it is. Uh, <laughs> what does he say at the end of Saving Private Ryan? It's like make it mean something. Yeah, uh, uh, make it worth it. Er, earn, earn this. Earn this exactly. God, that is at, so- Jesus. <laughs> yeah. As Eddie Carr is being torn apart by T-Rexes, he just whispers, earn this. <laughs> and uh, Ian Malcolm goes back to Isla Sorna and stares at a white cross and morphs into an old man. <laughs> it's true. And some truly uncannily, uncannily creepy morphing uh, technology. Um, <laughs> Jeff Goldblum just morphs into Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> or the same old man. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Eddie Carr is also uh, buried at Arlington National Cemetery. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, and was awarded the Medal of Honor, of course. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, Ian Malcolm, fucking great. And uh, like Lost World, for its flaws, would not be watchable at all, I think, without Jeff Goldblum. At sure. It. I mean, he's, he's so great. And that, I remember reading this as a kid. Michael Crichton was like the first real author I read, and I read the shit out of him in elementary school. And I remember being so confused as a kid. I was like, I, was like, I read that epilogue of, uh, of Jurassic Park, mm-hmm. and it said specifically Malcolm didn't make it. And it's like, why is he, <laughs> why is <laughs> he in he this How did he make one, it? <laughs> yeah, how did he make it? But anyway, speaking of characters who won out through sheer charisma, yeah, uh, despite being originally, or initially written to be killed off in pretty gruesome ways, we've talked about this movie ad nauseum. Um, but we do have to mention greatest movie of all time, Alien, 1979's Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien, um, in which, spoiler alert, the sole survivor of the Nostromo crew and uh, the attack by the Xenomorph is Ellen Ripley, You're right. played by Sigourney Weaver. And Ripley goes through a truly hellish experience even before she makes like her grand escape. And it's one of the, like, somebody asked on Twitter today, actually, like, what's your single favorite movie scene? Just straightforward as that. And obviously it's too many to narrow down, but like right. one of the first ones that came to mind was Ripley's escape. And it is just hellacious. Or even the, the chest burster at the uh, dinner also, table. Also super great. There's no shortage of great scenes. Again, alien, great movie. Go and watch it. But one, I remember like 
I, I watched that movie again when I like years ago on my laptop and had my headphones in, and I I was like sweaty, <laughs> uh, like, palm palm sweaty, mom spaghetti, um, during during that scene as she's trying to make her big getaway, and she earns her escape. She earns her happy ending for sure. And yeah. the original written ending for Alien though was that Ripley does this huge escape, and uh, you'll recall that. Ellen gets onto the escape pod and the xenomorph is there with her. It's, it's hiding yeah. in the, the machinery or whatever and uh, sort of emerges. And when she's almost completely undressed and completely vulnerable to it and through quick thinking manages to survive that incredibly harrowing situation. But the original ending was the xenomorph was going to bite off her head, you know, just like yeah. devour it completely and then the final like distress signal that would be sent out would be from the xenomorph using her voice. Yeah, mimicking her voice. Yeah. Which, like, it's a fucking dark movie already. <laughs> and it's so much better for having that, like... Breath at the end. Yeah, and for having that, like, you know what, you can face down, like, the ultimate evil and survive, potentially. Like, it's not hopeless, uh, even though you'll be traumatized or whatever else. And anyway, she survives. They decided, like, this is too much. They, I think they even filmed that ending and uh, decided, you know what, let's let's have her make, her, make, make good on her escape. And because of that, had arguably the greatest sequel in film history yeah. in Aliens. Which that would be a good episode. Uh, yeah, it would be, I think. And, and it builds so naturally on the sort of conclusions of that and makes her earn her life afterward um, in a really interesting way. And you wouldn't get any of that, obviously, if she had just been had her head bitten off. And, uh, yeah, so, Ellen Ripley, glad you made it, bud. Yeah. <laughs> Look how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Uh, next on our list is not a charismatic character who probably should have been killed off, honestly. Yeah. Uh, and it's that really, is... Certainly as depicted in the movies. Where, yeah. Like, Absol- and he's not... He's not any better in the books, but it's Ron Weasley. We'll, we'll bring you in, audience, okay. so, so, you, <laughs> yeah. so you can join this conversation. Mm-hmm. Rowling has said in interviews that it, when she initially started writing that she had no intention of killing off any of the big three, uh, but then like halfway through, she said she started to want to kill Ron. She, she, <laughs> <laughs> like anyone who watched the movies. Right. She, like, she said she was in a, in a bad place. And yeah. she wanted to do it out of spite. When was she going to do it? That's what I wonder. Was was it supposed to be the big like impetus, like Cedric Diggory's death was in the fourth book? It would. I don't, honestly, I feel like that would have made more sense. But God, that oh man, that would have been a really good book. It would have explained why. Who Harry... gives a shit about Cedric Diggory? Yeah, yeah. But, exactly. And and Ron's whole thing is that, and in that book, Ron's whole thing is that he's like playing second banana to Harry. He, they have like a falling out in the beginning of that book because he won't believe Harry that Harry didn't put his name in the goblet. He thinks yeah. Harry did it for the glory. Yeah, which and, which he never. God, that would have been a good book. Yeah, which he never grows out of, as far no. as I'm aware. No, I mean, he's a little like, bitch the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that like loyalty is supposed to be his virtue, and like he's the most disloyal character. Is he disloyal or is he just like grudgingly loyal? Because no, I, does I, he ever I, betray Harry? He's, he's just envious. Hmm. He, he, um, there are a lot of times where he just does not stick by Harry's side. Gotcha. Most notably in the seventh book. How so? What happens? He just like leaves on the big camping trip. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, fair. We've all had to discover ourselves, but. They get in a fight and he leaves. Like he comes back in the nick of time, of course. But uh, well, yeah. 
a Han Solo style. He should have uh, been dead by then. He shows up on the Millennium Falcon. He shoots down uh, Voldemort's TIE fighter. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, old ham yo-yo, as Harrison Ford calls him. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I am no Ron Weasley fan, but, like, it, is it too dark? Is it too much of a, like... Because I know that that was... It was supposed to age with its audience, and that was the fourth book is supposed to be, and the movie is supposed to be like the pivot on which, like, right, it's, it's for teens now. Voldemort's back. It's shit's real now. Yeah. Um, maybe it was supposed to be Ron dies instead of Sirius in the fifth book, but I mean, she's she's got no problem killing off like secondary characters. Yeah. <clears throat> and she certainly takes it out on his family, even though like most of them survived. Uh, George loses an ear. Fred gets killed in the seventh book. Mm-hmm. And then I think it's the sixth book. Bill becomes like part werewolf. <laughs> well, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. What exactly happens every quarter? Uh, Fenrir Greyback bites him when he has not changed. And they're mm. like, we don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Because Fenrir Greyback is just a psychopath. Okay. So he's just a guy who bites him. Yeah. But he, he okay. is a werewolf, but he has not Change. It wasn't at the full moon. Does this also happen if a regular psychopath bites us in real life? Yeah, Do we you, become part werewolves? Right. You become part psychopath. I gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know if that would be too dark or not. But she does say that she chose to kill Fred because she did not kill Ron. <laughs> One of the Weasleys must fall. Yeah, well, blood must. You know, blood must be spilled. <laughs> of course, <laughs> they've had it too good for too long. <laughs> I would say the Weasleys. Um, they got those micro loans. They, they should have been fine. <laughs> <laughs> they got their they got their startup capital. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, George might be dead, but Fred will make a pretty penny. Um, Reverse. Uh, whatever. <laughs> uh, well, we'll cut it out. Sure, yeah, we'll, we'll never make a mistake on this podcast. Yeah, you you have to remain infallible, mm-hmm, of course. Exactly. Put on my Pope hat. But <laughs> but yeah yeah that 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 intrigues me, and I also wonder like, do you as a because I've only ever. I've stopped reading after like the middle of the fifth book. Yeah. I just couldn't get through it. I was I was in like Stephen King phase at that sure. point, and uh, which we've established on the podcast. I'm a fan, and I've watched like most of the movies, mm-hmm. I guess, but I don't think I've seen like the final ones. Does Hermione and Ron's relationship ever really? Do you ever buy it? Like, does it ever feel more real than just like, oh, we were just kids and you had to fall in love with somebody? They because it never struck me as like. It just seemed like, oh, well, they got to date somebody. You they know? do the old married couple thing until, well, they just like gripe at each other. In the sixth book, um, Ron gets another girlfriend and it's like his first real girlfriend mm. and goes through like the gross teenage, like just kissing all the time phase. Sure. She and there, there's some really good space. scenes in that one between Ron and Hermione where she's just like fucking pissed off at him because she knows how she feels. Yeah. Um, and she's also like, she doesn't look like Emma Watson in the books, right? Like she's, she's considered more like plain or homely or whatever. She definitely has like a glow up in the books too. Okay. Um, like, I think it's the fourth, this, God, here I go. I think it's the fourth book, Malfoy hits her in the teeth with a spell that, like, makes them grow. And then, so, like, she has to go to the the nurse, Madame Pomfrey, to get him fixed. And she just, like, doesn't say when to stop and doesn't tell her to stop until her teeth are perfect. Uh, Okay. And so, like, that's, and then, like, the Yule Ball where she goes with Victor Crumb and has her, like, glow up. 
Yeah, so that's gotcha. that's in the book too. Okay. Yeah, it is. It has never been. It always seemed like Hermione. You can do so much better, girl. Yeah, believe in yourself. Like the whole the whole wizarding world is before you. Yeah, because like there's nothing super likable about Ron. Certainly no. in the movies, like Rupert Grant's version of Ron is just like some dipshit that just happened to be like luck into friendship with Harry Potter. That's kind of Ron though. Like okay. that's like he's playing it pretty close. Gotcha. And like Harry's not that great either. Like especially in the books, he's just like as a kid, I'm like. I didn't understand why he was so angry all the time, but like she actually kind of did write it where he has PTSD from watching Cedric die. I'm like, okay, mm. that actually makes a lot of sense, especially in book five. Yeah, but again, what if it was Ron? <coughs> like, it seems like that would hit so much harder because like Cedric's just nice to him a yeah, couple of times, he's, right? Yeah. But like otherwise, there's no like he's, real... he's like a rival and who is like you said nice a couple of times, but there's no like emotional connection really. Yeah. She that's that is the most. This is the weirdest thing about all of her writing. How hung up she is on Cedric Diggory. Like she, it's like she thinks she created a better character than she did. Got Robert Pattinson. Sure. He that's is great. Yeah, yeah. But the, her stage play, The Cursed Child, is all about trying to bring Cedric Diggory back to life. And it's like, why, why the mm. fuck are you so hung up on Cedric Diggory? Strange. It is weird. Although maybe, we maybe spent perhaps too long on Harry Potter, but it's still like, maybe... It makes sense in the sense of like if the cursed child is sort of like book one of a new era of Harry Potter, yeah. or like Harry Potter the Next Generation or whatever. Uh, maybe it makes sense that you try and reverse the darkness that was ushered in by Cedric Diggory's death. Like it's sort of symbolically trying to bring him back yeah. to a more like innocent place where it's all about, you know, stop flavor jelly beans. And and that's really what it, what the play ends up being about is it like by trying to do undo this thing that is so tied in with the return of Voldemort Voldemort it, it's like a butterfly effect thing I gotcha well speaking of magic and and other other spooky creatures sure. we move on to Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the character of Spike as played by James Mars Marsden Marsters Marsters that's the one <laughs> uh, Masters I don't know um, <laughs> some some version of that was correct Marsters Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Spike is this very punk rock sort of Billy Idol vampire who comes to town in Sunny Sunnyvale specifically, or Sunnydale in season two. Him and his lady love Drusilla, who's sort of a moon person, very space cadet sort of sure. type, type person. They come to come to Sunnydale and wreak havoc. And Spike is sort of the apparent big bad of season two until it turns out that spoiler alert angel Buffy's lover uh, has sex with her and achieves a moment of pure happiness, which due to a literal gypsy curse that had been placed on him <laughs> uh, meant that he would become a vampire once more. God and saying so it. Angelus, uh, the evil version of angel, the one who turned spike in the first place goes right back to his old stomping grounds and becomes a super sadistic evil vampire kills beloved characters and is up to no good. And the original plan was for Angelus to kill Spike to kind of prove how much of a badass he was. Right. And uh, that was the way it was going to go. Instead, James Marsters was like just so committed to the role. Like he had to bleach his hair every single time they would film. And it ended up like giving him like acid scars on his scalp. Like it's incredibly like not what you're supposed to do. Like he couldn't have roots because you're a vampire. Your hair doesn't grow back. Yeah. 
And also you're a vampire, therefore you don't breathe. And so anytime there was a scene with him, he would hold his breath the entire time. Oh my God. You're like very committed to this whole thing in a very like specifically nerdy way. <laughs> um, and he's definitely like the biggest nerd on the whole thing. Like he, ended up, when they did the Dragon Ball movie, Dragon Ball Evolution, sure. he volunteered to be Piccolo. He's basically like, <laughs> he, he would work He would work for next to no money because he just loved the source material so much. To give you an idea of the kind of actor that James Barster is. One Marster of my favorite says, of those stories is Robin Williams volunteered to be Professor Oak for no money. Is that right? Yeah. I, I didn't know he was a big Pokemon fan, but it doesn't surprise me because he's a huge Neon Genesis Evangelion fan. No way. And he wanted to be Gendo, apparently. Oh my God, that would have slapped. Which I think would have been good. Good Gendo. <laughs> anyway, we'll follow up on that some other time. <laughs> but, so yeah, Spike sticks around and he ends up being like probably the best character on the whole show. I mean, like, there's a, literally on the TV Tropes website that I get so many, so much of my, like, <laughs> so many of my ideas for, from for this show. There is a, a term called uh, spikeification uh, <laughs> or the spike effect, and now it's called badass decay, where you go from being like super scary and intimidating to being like we've discussed Venom multiple times. Yeah. You're so beloved that you can't do the evil stuff anymore. And Spike is like the number one example of this, where because they didn't kill him off, he sticks around. They got to have a rationale for him to be an enemy of Buffy's, and yet. Like Wolverine n- with his beer. Yeah, sort of like like, but even Wolverine is like he's clearly on the good guy side, even though he's like the most unpredictable of the good guys. Yeah. Spike is a bad guy who just hangs out with the good guys all the time. It's like, well, how do you justify that? <laughs> you know, and and at first it's through a series of guest appearances where he just like personally likes members of Buffy's family, and so he doesn't want to kill them off. Like he likes Joyce, Buffy, Buffy's mom, a lot. <laughs> and he just thinks she's perfectly pleasant, and so he doesn't want to kill her even though his plan was to kill her to torture Buffy. And he's like, I just don't have it in me. <laughs> and that is deep in that character in a lot of really interesting ways. And even though it becomes like kind of, to use the word we used a lot uh, when we were discussing this, defanged. Nerfed. Uh, he gets nerfed, totally. <laughs> Way less powerful than he used to be. He's still a beloved character, and he's still probably the best part of that show the, at the end of the day. Ow! <laughs> what are you doing here? Five what? words or less. Out for a walk, bitch. A sort of similar thing happened in the show Stranger Things with a character called Steve Harrington, who was supposed to be just like the sort of jock, dickhead, preppy, sort of the Jane Spader character. I smell what you're stepping in. You, you, you get it. For Nancy, who's like the lead female protagonist besides Eleven, the yeah. psychic girl. She would be with Steve and then realize that Steve's a jerk and would go with like the nerdier people and sure. be part of the broader crew that, you know, fights the monster that shows up in the town. And it turned out that Steve was like way more likable than the guy that she was supposed to, st- supposed to fall for. And even though he does like bully stuff, like he's still probably the most likable character on the whole thing. And they really lean into this in season two. Like I'm on the record saying Stranger Things should have ended with season one. And that should have been, you know, the, yeah. the the capper to the whole thing because it kind of loses the plot after that. But the big strength going on is that Steve becomes kind of the dad to the team of kids and becomes super lovable, in fact. And, hmm. act, like, you see that, you know, he's kind of a dipshit, but he really means well. And 
you know, like you know, and he knows that he's already kind of like peaked already, <laughs> and so uh, he becomes way more understanding of everybody else and has a natural character arc in a way that a lot of the characters in that show don't. Yeah, and so I don't know, like if you're going to watch Stranger Things, like just just watch for Steve. He's the best part. Like, uh, <laughs> and his friendship specifically with like, probably the nerdiest of the the younger kids, Dustin, who's the one who doesn't have the teeth. That relationship is is just terrific. It's super good. All right, so let me get this straight. You kept something you knew was probably dangerous in order to impress a girl who, who you just met? All right, that's grossly oversimplifying things. I mean, why would a girl like some nasty slug anyway? An interdimensional slug because it's awesome? Well, even if she thought it was cool, which she didn't, I, I just, I don't know, I just feel like you're trying way too hard, man. Well, not everyone can have your perfect hair, all right? It's not about the hair, man. The key with girls is just, just acting like you don't care. Even if you do? Yeah, exactly. It drives them nuts. Then what? You just wait until, uh... Until you feel it. Feel what? It's like before it's gonna storm, you know? You can't see it, but you can feel it. Like this, uh... Electricity? You know? Oh, like in the electromagnetic field when the clouds in the atmosphere. No, 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 no. Like a, like a, like a sexual electricity. Oh. You feel that, and then you make your move. So that's when you kiss her? No, whoa, 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 slow down, Romeo. Sure, okay, some girls, yeah, they want you to be aggressive, you know, strong, hot and heavy, like a, I don't know, like a lion. But others, you gotta be slow. You gotta be stealthy, like uh, like a ninja. What type is Nancy? Nancy's different. She's different than the other girls. So next on our list is Matt Hooper from Jaws, Richard Dreyfuss's character, who in the book, Jaws, is having an affair with Brody's wife, which uh. is a subplot they very wisely cut out for the movie. <laughs> and uh, he's just a much more... He's just a shithead. He's a total asshole character, and he is eaten by the shark in the book, and you, you like root for it when it happens. The book, by the way, is not very good. Don't check it out. Peter Benchley's Jaws, no good. Mario Puzo's Godfather, not uh, that great. Also not great. But anyway, Hooper, as portrayed by Richard Dreyfuss, though, is, you know, is, is, he's irritating, but in a lovable way. He ends up being a very likable character, but they still wanted to kill him off. And <laughs> so famously, there's a scene at the end of the movie where Hooper goes down in the shark cage thinking like, well, this can withstand like 600 PSI or whatever of force. Mm-hmm. And turns out Jaws, shark uh, Bruce, has more PSI. Uh, Bruce have more PSI and can crush the whole thing and ends up like hiding behind like a rock or something. And somehow that manages to get him away from, from sure, the shark. Sure. Uh, and we don't really know what happens until the very end when he surfaces and he and Brody swim back to Amity together. But the thing is they filmed a death scene for Hooper. They <laughs> 100% wanted him to die, but it just, it didn't look good enough or something malfunctioned with the shark as was a recurring right. issue on the movie. And so that's how Hooper lived. Uh, they're like, we couldn't get a good enough version of your death. So guess what? Your character survived. So yeah, the, the, the shark, the animatronic shark saved your life by not working. Yeah. Which is, that's interesting. I like that, that twist on it where it's like, yeah, Richard Drivers, you were pretty charming, but like. <laughs> we were going to kill you. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you're on thin ice, mister. That's what <laughs> I would say. Well, next up, 
We have two Sly Stallone movies, the original Rambo, a.k.a. First Blood, and uh, Rocky Five. And so, Tim, you've not seen Rambo. Any of the Rambos, is that right? Correct. I've seen that one scene where he's like, you don't need to go up, Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen the scene from the second one where he's like, do we get to win this time? Um, <laughs> no. In, in re Vietnam. Um, <laughs> right. Which, we'll have an episode on this another time, but like all of Rambo 2 was inspired by a huckster who made up the myth of MIA and POW still in Vietnam. Yeah. It was not a real thing. And he did a real life like Rambo 2, First Blood Part 2 style journey into Cambodia and to try and get to North Vietnam to rescue said imaginary hostages. And he got uh, intercepted on the way by another right wing (laughs) militia. (laughs) And is he in Cambodia or Laos? And so he never made it, but it was still the inspiration for Rocky Two or uh, <laughs> Wish Rocky Two. <laughs> That'd be a very different movie. But uh, Rambo, Rambo Two. Anyway, so if you had to guess, what would you say the first Rambo is about? What do you What do you think that movie is like, having never seen it? Well, I I know it's it's supposed to be like a Vietnam War movie. I just always assumed he was like a commando or something. He um, he was like a. Like, I don't know anything more than that. <laughs> yeah, and like, that totally, like, what I would assume too, right? And the, is that John Rambo is a, I think a Green Beret. Bakari Rambo. Bakari Rambo, <laughs> exactly. Didn't make it in the pros. Didn't, you know, bad processing ability on the back end as a safety. That that will really hit with some of the SEC fans <laughs> listening. Anyway. It's supposed to be Georgia fans? <laughs> I guess, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but uh, yeah, John Rambo is like this... Special Forces or Green Beret, or maybe those are the same thing. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> guy from... Uh, an operator. Yeah, he's a, definitely an operator, tier one operator from Vietnam. And he's totally traumatized by his experience in Vietnam. And the and First Blood, the first of the Rambo movies, is this very sober like psychodrama about this guy who wasn't ever welcomed back by society. Like It repeats that famous myth of being yeah. spit on by peace protesters. He comes back, and he never really comes back from Vietnam, mm-hmm. basically, is, is the story. And so he's just, like, drifting through this town, the Pacific Northwest, and for some reason, the sheriff, played by Brian Dennehy, hates Vietnam vets. Right. And, um, like you do. Yeah, which, I, you know, I guess, like, it is certainly true that Vietnam vets did not have the respect that was given to, mm-hmm. you know, even Korean vets or certainly World War II vets. Um, yeah, and also like the government did not take care of them. Also, certainly true. Anyway, but yeah, he's he's just like a drifter wandering through, and they you know treat him like he's just like a regular homeless guy, and say like get the fuck out of my town, basically, and sort of hunt him as he's trying to like live in the woods or whatever. Very Rambo thing to do. The only person he kills in the, like the beginning of the movie is a deputy played by David Caruso of Horatio Kane fame. Sure. And then eventually Brian Dennehy. But like he goes on this like big rampage, rampage, as Paul F. Tompkins' <laughs> version of Andrew Lloyd Webber would say, uh, through like this this small town where he just like guns down like this, you know, just like shop windows and stuff. He just has like a traumatic break, basically. And uh, at the really? very... Yeah, really. And it's all about like PTSD, basically. That's what First Blood is about. Holy shit. And it's a very, very grim movie. Like the tone is nothing like the other Rambo movies. And at the very end, the original script and then the book, Rambo kills himself. 
because he just can't live with what he's done and with, you know, life after the war. And Sylvester Stallone basically pled to have them spare him uh, so that he he has this moment at the end where he like breaks down weeping in the arms of his old commanding officer. And uh, that's the end. And it's, it's still a grim ending, but not as grim as him, you know, blowing his brains out or whatever. And then in the next movie, he is like an ultimate killing machine going back to Vietnam and basically winning Vietnam uh, again and like avenging America. See, that's, I guess that's the Rambo that, myth that I know. Yeah, well, it's certainly, that's how everyone knows it, right? Because no one fucking knows that first movie. It completely changes. Is his, his first blood the first movie or is it yeah, the second? Yeah, it's, it's the very first movie. And that's like a 1982 or something like that. And then the next one comes out there's a couple of years later and it could not be more different. It is Rambo has, Weird. Rambo kills like a hundred Viet Cong or whatever and like blows a guy up with an arrow. And, you <laughs> right. know, it's so, so different. And his, his, his death tap total goes from like two in the first movie to like 500 in the second. So it, it's and even very, more uh, in the third. Tarantino in that way. It is. Yeah. He enters the Tarantino verse essentially. <laughs> but yeah, that, so that's the first of the Stallone movies. And the second is Rocky five, which like the big arc of the Rocky movies is like this dope. Uh, just well, <laughs> <laughs> this 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 meathead will not give up. He's not the best at what he does, but he just keeps on, you know, powering through it. And if Rudy were a series. Yeah, essentially. And like, but he's got more talent ultimately than Rudy does. And and it gets more and more outsized as the movies go on, where yeah. like, you know, yeah, he'll get beat or his friend will get murdered on a <laughs> on a in a boxing ring. You know, but like he will have this like come to Jesus moment and realize I gotta get back to my roots. Uh, my roots. Yeah, you're, you, I, I for whatever reason I cannot do a Stallone accent. You're doing a much better job, but he's got to get back to his roots. He's got to go chase chickens and got to go punch uh, hanging uh, pigs Meat. in a slaughterhouse. Yeah, run up some stairs. Yeah, run up some stairs. Exactly. As long as it's in Philadelphia, right? Um, but yeah, his his arc is always the same. It's always like. Rags to riches, but the riches are bad. And you got to get back to those rags for a while. And so after Rocky Four, which is like a superhero movie, like it is cartoonish and also maybe the best of the Rocky movies. <laughs> it's so insane. Like in a, in a sort of Batman and Robin, Joel Schumacher way. Right. It's so over the top where like it's also fighting the Cold War in movie form. The, the Drago one? It is the Drago one. It is the I must break you. I must break you. Yeah. Uh, where... Dolph Lundgren has to square off against right. uh, against Sylvester Stallone because Dolph Lundgren killed in a friendly match, killed Apollo Creed. That doesn't sound very friendly. It doesn't sound very friendly at all. And Stallone's got to avenge his friend. And he's truly like the number one boxer in the world. Like there can be no, every punch is a punch that would kill somebody. And <laughs> they, they keep coming back for these punches. It's so unrealistic. And so they try and gritty it up in Rocky five, which is, such an ill-advised movie for a variety of reasons, but it basically brings it back to the streets. Sure. And Rocky like has like early onset dementia or something, and he like doesn't talk to his kid anymore. And it's it's dark. It like originally the way of showing showing darkness was like Rocky has CTE. Yeah, he does actually. And like in the earlier movies, you show you the way that you showed that Rocky had had gotten too uh, fat and comfortable resting on his laurels was that, you know, he had a robot in his house. Jesus. Uh, and in this, you see, you know, he can barely string a sentence together. And uh, the original ending of Rocky Five is that he gets in a street fight 
with his rival Tommy, who's like who kind of admires him and kind of like is the next Rocky. But also, it's it's sort of like uh, Vinnie Corleone from right. Godfather Three. <laughs> um, he embodies the best and worst of the Corleones right. and of Rocky in this case. And in the end of the original draft of Rocky Five, uh, Rocky dies like a dog in the street. He's <laughs> beaten to death by Tommy. And what an uh, uplifting movie! A very uplifting movie. And they decided like that won't fly. And it's not like anyone liked it anyways. But it was it was a bridge too far. It was simply. <laughs> Too far to go. Uh, although I would obviously love to see that movie. It, w- it would it would ruin, unfortunately, Creed, which yeah. came later. And Rocky is actually a great part of that. Sylvester Stallone is a great part of that. It kind of redeems himself. I got to teach the kid. Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> 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 yes. Um, but it's, it's actually super good. Shout out to Creed. But anyway, that, that's how those movies would end. But Sylvester Stallone blackballed both of those endings. And we got, I guess, better movies Despite that, although... We got more movies. We definitely got more movies, and that's the important thing. You're spot on there. So moving on, uh, Lethal Weapon 2 was supposed to feature the death of uh, Riggs, Mel Gibson's character. Mm. Uh, He didn't die, and he was supposed to be killed by South Africans, which, knowing how Mel Gibson stands politically now, you wonder, like... Was it friendly fire? Was it a friendly fire incident? He would have laid down his life for them, sure. Yeah, yeah. so uh, I don't know how it holds up now. Uh, Lethal Weapon 3 is okay. Lethal Weapon 4 is not very good. And uh, we would have missed out on opportunities for Danny Glover to just go, Riggs, Riggs, uh, again and again. So in that sense, we lost out. But really, I mean, if they had, if it had been like the crow and had accidentally shot Mel Gibson, I think it would have worked out better for everybody, including him, <laughs> for his reputation. Because yeah. uh, it is in the old toilet right now. Because he's an anti-Semite. He sure is, and also an abuser. What an awful guy. It sucks, because I love Mad Max, and yeah, uh, yeah, things could have been different, but it's all his fault. Mid mix. Mid mix. Uh, (laughs) That's how they say it in New Zealand, Uh, not in Australia. But anyway, uh, last on our list, this is a short episode, but hopefully, I I hope everyone finds it to be a good one. Last on our list is uh, Dante from Clerks, one of the most famous, like, rewritten endings. Yeah. Uh, Tim, how do you feel about Kevin Smith at this stage in your life? How did you once feel, and how do you feel now? So I, I used to think he was like a comedic genius. Mm. Um, I very much enjoyed his movies in the past. I haven't seen one in years. Like I probably haven't watched one since high school, and I, so like I don't have a um, like a more informed opinion of him. Like I have no desire to go back and watch his movies. Honestly, yeah, it's kind of like watching like like. Can you imagine just going back and watching like the Boondock Saints or whatever? Like I worry about this with uh, like Snatch, Snatch, yeah, you know, and other movies we loved when we were in high school. Watched like, and watched and watched. Yeah. We, we love Dogma, right? And you like uh, mm-hmm. definitely quoted it a shit ton. And like, is there any way this isn't just unwatchable garbage? I don't know about that, but Clerks allegedly is good. Allegedly, yeah, it's it's got a different. It's, a, it's such a different tone than Dogma. Do you think so, really? Because yes, it's, it's the same, like, smoochie-boochies, like, bullshit. The, yeah, I think the black and white just does so much. Mm. I, I, I think it gives, an like, an air of um, ethos that dogma does not have. Yeah. Dogma well, is, like, so cartoonish in places. Yeah, Whereas, well, like, a literal Clerks, shit monster. Yeah, like, Clerks is kind of, like, gritty, though. Yeah, I guess. Um, but it was supposed to be grittier originally. Right, um, as we were just discussing. Yeah, because Dante, the uh, goateed clerk, titular clerk, <laughs> um, 
was supposed to go through this, you know, like it's just like a day in the life, right? Where he's just like shooting the shit with his friends and like the drug dealer losers who hang out around his yeah. video store or whatever. At the very end, he was supposed to get robbed in a in a uh, stick up job, yeah, like and murdered with a shotgun, and that was supposed to be the end of Clerks. And they filmed it, like they they filmed it, and like the it just didn't it was, wasn't it didn't work. It was too dark. <laughs> Yeah, and they were like, oh, no, this isn't working. So Yeah, yeah, which, like, wh- I haven't seen Clerks since I was very young. Like, surely that would not have improved it. I don't know if I've watched the whole thing, honestly. Yeah. it's It's been so long. I'm sure I have. I bet I watched it in college. Like, we had so many movie channels in the dorm and so much time. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Couldn't just play Halo 3 that entire time. Right, Halo 3 or Oblivion, for sure. Sure, sure. Uh, Hi, I'm a doc elf. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, I just like that. That's one that I don't have as much of an opinion on because I just I know that movie so little compared to what I, what I once did, what once I knew. But yeah, it, it seems like ever since I heard about it, it seemed like that is so misjudged. Like, there's no way that would work. Yeah, it, and it's it's so far off. Like, yes, the movie has a grittier tone than Dogma, but that's still like. It makes you wonder, like, what he was trying to make, like, what kind of movie he thought it was. Like, I, I don't know. It's just, I mean, because it, it does have like the person dies in the bathroom and like the girl has sex with a dead body, essentially. Yeah. So that that's that's but pretty that, gritty. But and that's dark. just a story in it, right? Like, or is well, that a thing that actually happens in the movie? It's a thing that actually happens, okay. but it's not like something you see. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I, it's just weird. I wonder about it because, like, Kevin Smith is not what you call a good technical director. Like, he may be a good screenwriter, and, like, I, I will hear a difference of opinion on that. But I think the nicest thing you can say about him as a director is that it is perfunctory direction. Like, it is just <laughs> point a camera at some people who are talking. There's no movement. There's no creativity with how yeah, it's Yeah, his how shots are, like, super still. Oh, yeah. And it's something that I've the more I've learned about movies, the more I notice when I watch them and it becomes unwatchable to me in part. But anyway, I just wonder if like, if that's like a bid for more respect and more like gravitas or whatever, yeah. it feels like it doesn't fit at all with like being kind of rebellious and who gives a shit, whether it's like true cinema or whatever. Anyway. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's, that's clerks. And that is the end of our list. There are others we could cite, but uh, you've heard them, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're like every listicle. Yeah, uh, and we, we try to mix it up a little bit. But uh, anyway, uh, before we close out, Tim, do you have any recommendations for this week? So I do have like one sort of qualified recommendation. The EA video game Battlefront It's in the 2. game? It is in the game. All right. Uh, EA Sports, for sure. EA Esports. Battlefront 2, they've had like a 10 gigabyte patch on it, and they've added a ton of stuff to it. And they've actually added in like the old sort of King of the Hill style like <laughs> game mode where you have to like take over the little like glowing like emblems. patch of land or whatever. Uh, and it's still really fun. Like uh, it's it's a lot harder to just like break the game than you could on the old Battlefront 2 where you could just run to like in a certain order and hit the little glowing emblems gotcha. and like okay. turn them to your side. It's not as broken as the old one where you could just run like to the farthest one and then like make your way back and gotcha. totally whip your enemy because the maps are so huge and the the little spawn points are intelligently placed that like uh, you, you can't break it that way. I was going to say are are maps broken in favor of one side or the other like they were in the old game? 
I mean, where like if you were the Empire on was it Kashyyyk or whatever, like you you had no excuse to lose, right? No, they're they're or Hoth, they're maybe they're better than that. Yeah, I forgot about that. There are some maps that I swear to God you almost never see one side win, but the, what it does is it just forces you to be the other side next, and so everybody does each one before it moves to a different gotcha. map. Um, anyway, it's fun and you should play it and. Gotcha. Did they manage to like even it out from like? Because I remember, it seemed like there was such a barrier to entry that if you, like, if you couldn't, if you didn't have the time to like grind it out to get all the points you needed to get the special rifles and shit, so they they had to pay for the privilege of they've doing gotten it. rid such of a controversy. lot of that. Well, okay, I say that you have to level up each like different character type individually now. And I've got like one that's maxed out, but all of my others are like pretty low. And so it's like, it's kind of hard for me to play as those other character types. So yeah, there there is a little bit of a barrier to entry that way, but they've gotten rid of the loot crates and stuff. And it's not, there's nothing like the award rifle in the old gotcha. one where it was just like, if you see the other person, they're dead. I remember. I recall <laughs> this very distinctly. The, the closest are the heroes to that. And you can, you can, you can kill a hero and it feels so good when you do. Gotcha. Um, especially if you're like another, it, like one time I beat down uh, Kylo Ren as Chewbacca <laughs> uh, and it was really gratifying. Cause like mm. you got a fucking lightsaber, man. I just hit you with my Wookiee fist and now you're dead. Gotcha. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's even better if you're just like a regular mook or whatever, killing them off and you can saying we don't need another hero. Yeah. I, I took out Dooku the other day as, as a, like a regular heavy trooper. So like mm. you've got the machine gun or whatever. If they come within a certain range, like with like the effective range of your gun, and you shoot them in the face, they'll die. <laughs> <laughs> well, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> He's only got a lightsaber. It's <laughs> true. Uh, and he, the trick is just cut those hands off. <laughs> his fatal weakness, and then the head. Yeah, is is fatal. Well, flaw. you got to finish him off Highlander style. Sure. And then you take the quickening. You take his quickening. The force. We we learned this. <laughs> So I was super sick and depressed yesterday. And I'm sorry, <laughs> so bud. That's okay. Uh, and so I, w- I did what I always do in those situations. I watched a shit ton of movies. Hell yeah. And uh, so I have some movies to recommend. One I watched not yesterday, actually, but a couple, couple uh, this past weekend uh, that I really was shocked at how much I enjoyed was a Australian, I guess you'd call it a horror movie, but sort of a mockumentary called Lake Mungo. Mm-hmm. Which isn't the scariest name in the world. No, but, it's not. Um, I agree. But uh, basically, it's sort of like what if Errol Morris or another great documentarian did a documentary about like a ghost story, like a haunting. Cool. And it's set in like this like rural town in Australia, and this girl drowned, and in the months after her death, drowned. Again, New Zealand and Australia are different. I feel like we need to break this down in a future episode. Uh, when we have our accent off. Debatable. Debatable. That's true. <laughs> but uh, anyway, a couple of months after this girl drowns, the rest of her family starts seeing, you know, like door slam and they set up video cameras and they see like ghostly images and stuff. Spooky. And it's, it's, the thing is, it's more complicated than that sounds. Like, they deepen this in a really complex way that I don't want to spoil for anybody. Mm. It's not just, like, cheap scares at all. And it's much more like a study of grief. And it's kind of a companion piece in a way to Twin Peaks, in a way I don't want to spoil. But it's, it's, it's really moving, honestly, in a lot of ways. Huh. And it all builds up to, there's only one real scare, but it is 
fucking terrifying. It I, lands. <laughs> it lands in a big way. It is so spooky. And it it is a rare instance of using a scary moment. The closest thing, thing I can think of is the movie The Conversation, which is a very similar trick in it, where that one scary moment retroactively makes the rest of it so much more meaningful and more scary because you realize what level it's operating on. He was dead the whole time. <laughs> just just so. <laughs> But it, it was actually, it was really terrific. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. I, I highly recommend it. Some of the ones I watched yesterday, I would recommend uh, Logan. Logan! Hell yeah. Uh, which still fucking whips ass. It is still great. I was kind of afraid that, like, I watched it in the theater. This is the uh, Gritty Wolverine movie. I watched it in the theater, and I loved it then, and I was... <laughs> the adamantium fox. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's looking good. He's looking looking good as always. Hugh Jackman is. Uh, he's zaddy. He's definitely zaddy in this movie. Um, taking that title from Jeff Goldblum. But yeah, I uh, I I watched in the theater and I really loved it. But it's you know it's got corny like where it's hard on its sleeve kind of moments interspersed with like intense graphic violence. Like them like cutting his beard to give him the Wolverine. Like, yeah. Have, have you seen Logan? Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, it, well, it fucking rules, right? Yeah, it's we awesome. agree. Yeah. It's super great. And it's super moving. And I watched it again. And like, I'm obviously like, you know, when it comes to dad stuff, I'm in an emotional, emotionally sensitive place, but sure. it was, it was so good. I, I, I loved it just as much the second time around. And, uh, highly recommend it. And like, if you get the same visceral charge from Hugh Jackman, just, screaming and grunting as I do, <laughs> you'll love that movie. Like there's a moment towards the end where the bad guys think they've got this thing like wrapped up and they hear out in the forest, out in the distance, just huge Jackman going, ah! <laughs> and everyone's like, <laughs> yeah. and everyone's just like, Oh shit. Uh, <laughs> he's back. Like it's, it's really <laughs> happening. And it's, it's so good. It, it's just such a, such a good movie. Uh, so shout out to Logan. It's streaming on Hulu right now. Another one I want to shout out. We've mentioned them already in the podcast. This is uh, a Robert Pattinson vehicle called High Life. Uh, it's directed by Claire Denis. Uh, it's about the champagne of beers. Um, it's not, unfortunately. It's about. Um, it's kind of a sci-fi movie that is hmm. about this mission of like condemned criminals. They have a choice between the death penalty, where they'll definitely die, or taking this sort of bizarre mission out into deep space to see if humanity can harvest the energy from a black hole. Sure. Sure. Um, which if that sounds like a wild goose chase that will never possibly work, that's because it is. And it's a different kind of death sentence essentially for them. But because we're moving faster than light time dilates and they spend forever basically in the ship going this huge distance and, so it's allegedly a sci-fi thing, but Claire Denis, the filmmaker, is more interested in like human bodies and flesh, and that means both like fluids and and sex and like gritty stuff, but also like uh, growing into your body. Like at the very beginning of the movie, it's just a story about Robert Pattinson, who's one of these astronauts, mm-hmm. and his very young daughter is a, is just a baby as she's growing up and he's kind of taking care of her and taking care of the ship at the same time. And you get these sort of like hints as to what happened uh, to get them there. And then, and it's kind of like a happy movie in that sense. Like it's very peaceful and serene when it's just the two of them. And then you kind of get like the extended flashback. That's the rest of the movie of like, well, how did they get there? It turns out there was a big crew of people, none of whom are around Uh. at this earlier scene and what went wrong. And it's so, 
so dark. I cannot express how Jeez. despairing it is. It's beautiful. Like it's it's really inventive in the way that it uses these sci-fi tropes to express something darker and that's relatable. Even though like even though we will never be astronauts, there's something about it that it says it, you. Well, sure. Yeah. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and people have always worried or always uh, wondered where Tim works at SpaceX. To the stars through blood. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, I don't know how much I love the movie. Like parts of it didn't totally cohere to me, but great supporting performances from uh, Julia Binoche and Andre Benjamin, uh, Andre 3000 of Outcast fame. Really? He's in it pretty briefly, but he's really terrific, and I'd like to see him act in more things because of this movie. Does he do the Andre 3000 voice? He just sounds like him, I gotta say. <laughs> like, he just has his voice. Like, he it's, uh, got his nice, uh, thick Atlanta accent, and <laughs> it's good stuff. But anyway, I recommend It's a qualified recommendation. It is a, it's a tough watch, but it is... Um, if you buy in, I think I think there's something deeper there that's worth checking out. And uh, final recommendation, y'all knew it was coming. I'm recommending a recent Joaquin Phoenix movie <laughs> about a deeply traumatized, suicidal, violent man who takes care of his mother. That is, of course, you were never really here Walk from 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Another James Mangold movie, actually. He did, he, he did Logan and he did Walk the Line. And Logan famously, the, the cut to the credits, is a Johnny Cash song. Oh, shit. Uh, when the Man Comes Around. I remember that, yeah. Which I didn't put, a, put together until literally yesterday when I was watching it. But anyway, You Were Never Really Here is sort of a companion piece. Just like, in a way, Joker is, I haven't seen it yet, but it's Joker is apparently a companion piece to The King of Comedy, the Martin Scorsese movie, and a little bit to Taxi Driver as well. Yeah. You Were Never Really Here is definitely a companion piece to Taxi Driver. It is commenting a lot of the same things where it's about this guy who is a Vietnam, or not a Vietnam vet, he's an uh, Afghanistan veteran mm-hmm. and was in the FBI briefly and is traumatized by the things he saw in the line of duty in both those cases. And now he basically is a professional hitman whose sole job is rescuing victims of human trafficking. Like basically he tracks down the Jeffrey Epstein's of the world and kills them with a hammer. Well done. And he's in the shoe while some cameras and guards are off. Yeah, exactly. Guards yeah. Are sleeping and cameras. <laughs> yeah. Are he's doing on the Clinton's orders. I think we've, <laughs> I, I don't know if I said that yet, but, but yeah, it's, it's implied. Allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah. But no, he's, he's just like this brute of a man who it, it's such a, and obviously like it's, it's a fair trigger warning. Anybody who has like mental issues is, it's a very convincing example of somebody who doesn't want to live anymore uh, because of their trauma and is struggling through that. And the, the real drama of the movie, like the hits are not incidental. Like the plot is, it's a very tightly wound thriller and it's very intense, but the violence is secondary to the sort of mental anguish and the mental violence of what mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix is going through. And he's arguably the, the best actor of his generation. And this is no exception. He is phenomenal in this movie as a man who is just struggling to get through. And it's such an interesting counterpoint to Taxi Driver and to Travis Bickle and that that own legendary performance of a different kind of Viet or an actual Vietnam vet movie. Yeah. A different kind of PTSD movie. Like how do you reacclimate to a society that doesn't care for you at all? It was terrific. I was really stunned at how much I enjoyed it. And it is streaming on Amazon Prime and I think also on Canopy for free if you have a library card. So check that out. I loved it. Lynn Ramsey, the director, is absolutely terrific as well. Really, really just superb movie. 
Uh, so check it out, especially if you are cool with a little a little ultra violence here and there. Those sound like some good recommendations. There you go. Uh, I, I I I wrung out that towel there you uh, go. here. That's that's everything I got. But <laughs> anyway, uh, for my boyfriend's podcast, I've been your boyfriend Walt, joined as always by your boyfriend Tim. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you uh, have any favorite characters who managed to uh, avoid the guillotine, uh, please reach out to us on Instagram at my boyfriend's podcast, on Twitter at my boyfriend's pod, or on gmail.com at my boyfriend's podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you on any of these things, or indeed if you feel that a Wolfman would be a valuable or not valuable addition to a team. Sure. Uh, a basketball team specifically. Uh, if you think the answer is no, you're wrong, and that's fine. <laughs> we we have established Teen Wolf, you know, <laughs> broke that mold 100%. Or if you have anything to recommend to us, we'd love to hear from you. But uh, I want to say thank you to Drew Price for our theme song. Thank you, sir. He'll survive everything, I think, that Drew Price will. Of course. Uh, I want to say shout out to, what's the name again? Nick. Nick, that's right. Nick. Shout out to Nicholas. Shout out to Nick. Young Nicholas. And finally, I want to say, what does dead man ever die? Winter is coming. Take